and welcome to the Library Talks podcast brought to you by Sutton Council's Cultural Services. I'm your host Alfie from the Cultural Services digital team uh, and after an initial run just over a year ago the Library Talks podcast is back. So welcome to the first in this new run of episodes featuring a new format, a new range of guests from both inside the library service and out. This week we're joined by poet and author Catherine Smith, who was good enough to welcome us into our home in East Sussex for a wide-ranging conversation uh, towards the end of last year, covering her career, varying cultural attitudes to poetry and the arts around the world, ownership and authorship, and more. I also asked Catherine to come prepared with three Desert Island books, something we will be returning to across this series. She provided three fascinating choices, which you will hear her reading from towards the end of the episode. So without further ado, on with the podcast featuring our guest, Catherine Smith. Are you aware that if you Google your name, Mm. uh, Google describes you in the following way, Catherine Smith. Or Katharina Smith oh. was an English no- was an English novelist and actress, best known for her gothic fiction. Almost all that is known of her is that she came from a wealthy family and had acted at the Haymarket Theatre in London. Is, oh. is that you? No, that's not me. That's great though, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it could be. That it's, could, you know, that's, that's next knows? to a picture of you as well. I don't know if you're aware. Of that. <laughs> I wasn't. I never so. Google myself. Uh, that's really strange. I do get sometimes. I get messages from um, uh, various sort of. Um, organizations that track academic papers and Mm. say are you the Catherine Smith that wrote about drainage in the fens or um (laughs) you know some esoteric subject or other and I have to keep saying no I don't so I think there's quite a few of us you ever tempted to masquerade and get a payday out of it (laughs) (laughs) yeah sometimes I'm I'm tempted to say yeah I wrote that article yeah Yeah, I've got a degree in waste management I'm very clever and useful um if you're not um a long dead uh, actress uh, known for a gothic fiction. Who are you? <laughs> well, good question. So, um, no, I don't think I'm dead, and I don't think I'm known for my gothic fiction. Although I do, I do love reading gothic fiction. So, uh, I was born in Windsor in Berkshire in 1962, and uh, I grew up in Windsor, not realizing quite how strange Windsor was until I left it. <laughs> I, I mean, I just thought that everybody, you know, everybody grew up in somewhere with a castle, of course, and uh, and soldiers kind of. Um, uh, dressed up in bearskins and things, playing, playing in brass bands every Saturday morning. I thought I thought that was natural. <laughs> that everyone had that. <laughs> and then I went off to live in Bradford in West Yorkshire to go to university, and I realised that indeed this was not the case. No, it was no. it was a bit different. And so you've that was good. Settled in a, a in a part of the country that's uh, got no strange. Uh, no strange customs at all. <laughs> yeah, we got a castle, we got a river, we got people dressing up as well. You know, every fifth of November they dress up as pirates, and uh, um, yeah, all sorts of strange things go on in Lewis, absolutely, in East Sussex, in uh, in November. Well, all year round, really. It's quite yeah. a, it's quite an eccentric town. I love it. <laughs> it's it's great. It's it's full of really kind of um, maverick characters. Who uh, a Sussex expression is we won't be drove. Oh yes, which is great, and uh, nobody. In Lewis will be drove. You can't drove anyone. So no, and you've good. tried. I have tried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've tried driving, didn't work. <laughs> um, so going, going back, going back, going back. Um, we're obviously here on the Library Talks podcast. Mm-hmm. What part 
uh, did libraries play in your earlier formative years, um, and if any, and did this inform your relationship to literature or poetry? Because yeah. you are, of course, we should say, a poet. Yeah, and I, and I write fiction as well, and I've written some drama. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can remember a really happy memory of the library van coming mm. to my pri- primary school, and I thought that was absolutely marvellous. So... Um, you know, obviously we had the proper library in the town. That was very, very exciting. That was like static heaven. And then the mobile van would come round and that was like, you know, mobile heaven. And I think you were allowed to take up to four books out and there was somebody there and they would stamp the book. And I just loved all the paraphernalia of libraries. Yeah. I loved that I loved the way that, you know, the little stamp was somebody would have to sort of manually um alter the, the month and the oh, yeah. and click the, and the click date. The dates yeah. In, yeah. And then the and then you know, putting it in the ink pad and then splat on the page and that kind of thing. And, and that's how you knew when you take it out and when you must bring it back and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I loved it. I, I mean, I think libraries are the mark of a, of a civilised society. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, one of the, well, one of the many sad things during lockdown was the fact they were closed. Because I think, and I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently, that they're about sharing. They're about, you know, communal ownership. And, you know, obviously as a writer, you know, you want to sell your book, so you want everyone to have them privately kind of thing. Mm. But it's also, but most people are not going to do that. So when I was a child, a lot of the the reading I did was, it was a process of serendipity. I would go to the library and I would just pick off books that had nice covers or interesting titles or like the blurb on the back. And I think that kind of slightly random approach to you know, forming taste is really good because, you know, we're the best one in the world. Um, parents, well, certainly, you know, in those days, parents couldn't afford to buy loads and loads of books yeah. for their kids. So going to the library was the way that you encountered writers and you encountered new ideas. So it was, yeah, hugely formative. I suppose that removing the possibility of buyer's remorse and <laughs> turning it into a <laughs> transaction, you think, I can take all of these home and yeah. just have a go with it. And have a go, absolutely. Bring it back uh, when yeah. I'm done, <laughs> whether I, mean, I liked it my, or not. My approach has always been, you know, quite random. When I was doing my MA at Sussex University, um, and there was, uh, I did the minor part of it. I did a creative, well, it was a, um, it was an MA in, in creative arts and education. And I hadn't completely read the small print. So I knew I was there to write short stories, but the poetry was, I, I had to offer a minor. I thought, God, what am I going to do? And then I thought, well, I wrote quite a lot of poetry as a child and an angsty teenager. So I'll just have a go at that. It'll be mm. crap, but you know, it's only, only the minor part. And I would go to the university library and we were allowed to take out six books, which was very exciting. And Sussex Step University, it's just, it, it really was, it really was. Um, so I would just go to the poetry shelves and I would just select six poetry collections every week. And I had no idea about any of them. And I just read and read and read. And because it was it was free to do that... Um, you can do that. It was it was wonderful, and, and I kind of completely immersed myself in contemporary poetry, and then, you know, going back to eighteenth and nineteenth century poetry, and that was that kind of immersion, that kind of right, just plunge in. You haven't got much time, yeah. you know. There, there's no plan, but just read as much as possible. That was what worked for me, rather yeah. rather than kind of um, having a more um, academic and selective approach. I just thought complete immersion, just plunge into the Throw deep it all end, the wall, see, yeah, see what, see what happens. Yeah. Was there a particular when you were kind of, um, I suppose, getting into literature? Mm. 
um, and that being your approach, was it a particular genre or character or author that was the first thing that really grabbed Yeah, you? Um, fiction, yeah. I think. Um, but I did, as I say, I did write poetry as a child and I had the usual sort of child's compendium of poetry, which, which tended to be rather sort of twee and sentimental and yeah. very well behaved and so forth. But then later I got into, you know, Spike Milligan and nonsense poetry and that kind of thing. And also I was a huge, huge Alice in Wonderland fan okay. and in a fact, a few years ago some friends and I did a a project with the British Library on Alice because it was 150 years of Alice and we invited all our mates to write poems pertaining to the Alice book so and and we brought out an anthology indeed Um, and that was that was great fun Um, and I loved all the sort of nonsense poetry Mm. in the Alice books I thought that was just so exciting and amazing so yeah I yeah I just kind of I was omnivorous and still am actually I mean you know my my happy place would be to be you know locked in a library with an adequate supply of food drink and uh, and a working toilet and then just you know <laughs> spend <detail>. my absolutely <laughs> spend my dotage doing yeah. that really i've always i just have always found it strange when the sort of poetry that i just can't sort of get on board with i suppose when it's very um formulaic mm. or kind of adhering to the received mm. rules because i've just probably more than any other medium you can do whatever you want to do and the the only sort of instrument is your words and voice yeah and I think it's a bit of a wasted opportunity if you take that and go well where should this go and what should this kind of end up as but I do think that form done I think when you when you get into form, it can actually be weirdly liberating. Mm. Constraints can be because what it does, if you have to find a rhyme or a near rhyme, it makes your mind work in different ways. Yeah. And for example, with a sonnet, which is traditionally 14 lines, because you've only got 14 lines, that discipline and that rigor and that compression can actually send you off into, you know, if, if somebody said, oh, write a poem about, you know, your your the first person you had a crush on or something and you know you could go on for pages and pages and pages and throw everything at it if you've only got 14 lines you've got to be really really selective yeah. so weirdly that that restraint and that discipline can be can be very liberating and and can make you you know um it can send you down interesting new avenues i, I suppose think. you have to have a solid grasp of the rules before you can break them yeah but you know what they're not that mysterious that was the thing that i mean i learned them at school and then promptly forgot them you know as you do with with most things you learn at school i think right <laughs> or maybe that's just me um so i so i kind of because we studied i went to a girls grammar school and we studied the metaphysical poets and it was you know i loved it i thought it was great um but i forgot about all the stuff about meter and iambic pentameter and um you know all the all the the rules of form and stuff but then when I started writing poetry I got into it again as I said by reading metrical verse and then thinking oh okay it goes de dum de dum de dum de dum de dum well that's interesting and that bit's stressed and that bit's unstressed so I, I kind of plunged into the enjoyable stuff and then you know it's a bit like flat pack furniture put it together and then if all else fails read the instructions (laughs) (laughs) so I kind of put it together first and then I went back and read the instructions and actually I don't think it's that it's not that complicated and I and I think what happens sometimes in academia is that it's it's made to feel more complicated than it actually is to you know to kind of 
justify the fact that people have you know that my job is the chair of poetry and just think well actually you you can get your head right most people can get their heads around the rules of, of, of meter and form and there's you know there's international forms like the gazelle which is absolutely beautiful so I think what happens in schools or certainly when I was at school was that we we tended to learn the Italian and the French stuff you know the sonnets of the villanelle but you know look into Arabic and Indian poetry mm. there's some absolutely beautiful forms out there I don't know what you're as someone who teaches oh. I've always found, or I did always find at school, the way that poetry's taught does seem designed to put you off poetry for life. <laughs> yeah, that's the intention. Yeah. Well it's done all, for spotting that. It's all the really kind of, um, that sec- uh, sort of secondary school anyway, is the kind of uh, sort of canonical contemporary poets mm. who all seem to write in sort of A-B rhyming couplets, um, usually just sort of observations about life and it yeah. kind of that's about as far as it goes and if you want to kind of find yeah. stuff that really excites you you kind of have to go looking for it I've never yeah I was never sort of I don't know I don't think I ever had a sort of poetry lesson where we were sort of encouraged to kind of look outside that and I don't know I don't know what you would... well I I didn't teach I, I teach adult ed but I um I also teach for the Arvon Foundation and the Poetry School, and that's mostly adults. But I have worked with, um, I mean, I worked for West Sussex Gifted and Talented um, programme for many years, on, and we did workshops on Saturdays. So we worked with kids, and we uh, got them to write their own poems. So, you know, it was all about writing your own poetry, but obviously looking at some particular models. Um, I, think it's, I think it's a great shame if people are put off poetry at school. I think sometimes it's presented as something very dry, and quite impenetrable and there's a, you know there's a kind of you know you have to virtually join a cult to be able to understand it and I think that's that's really wrong I mean the poetry workshops I did in schools my my feeling was that you know anyone is allowed to do this you know you're allowed to do it it's not that you have to have membership of an elite organization you know poetry is it belongs to all of us it's not it's not the um it's not the preserve of an elite. Um, I think there's a lot more democratisation of poetry now. I think there's there's a lot of great performance poetry, a lot of slam poetry. You know, there are these people who, God bless them, learn really, really long poems, which I, I can't. I have to sort of have the book there and glance. But I think it has, I think it's sort of been taken out of the academy as well. I think a lot of people have realised that, you know, this doesn't have to be a dry academic subject and that a poem can be about absolutely anything. I mean, and poems have always been written, you know, there's beautiful poetry in the in the Bible, you know, there's there's um 10th century Chinese women's poetry, which is which is actually incredibly saucy and sexy. Um, you know, it's 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 always been going on. It's it's not something that that you know, popped up in the 19th mm. century and then someone thought, oh, better put this on the curriculum. <laughs> you know, it's, it's always been there. People have always used poetry. And, and I think before people, before most people could leave and read and write, um, you know, the poem is the only portable art form. If you can remember a poem, bit of a struggle for me, but, you know, most of us can remember a sort of 14-line poem. You, you have that piece of art in your head and you can then share it. So before people wrote poems down... The ways in which um, poems were shared were the bards and the troubadours going mm. round and, and, you know, reciting 
poems and then people would learn the poems and and even if they couldn't read or write they would have the rhythms of the language and the images and so forth in their heads so so it's an incredibly um economically uh um uncomplicated mm. art form you just need paper and pen i think that kind of lends itself or a memory as well. yeah <laughs> i think that kind of gives it the potential to be quite subversive as well mm. especially oh yeah i guess in points of history where you weren't able to print things or you weren't mm. able to sort of share certain written yeah, ideas absolutely. and the way you could do that was through yeah. Sort of poetry and storytelling. Absolutely. Poetry and storytelling. And if you you know, if you think back to nursery rhymes, which is where most of us encountered our first poems kind of thing. I mean, anyone if you could remember if you could remember those, then you could share them with children. And so, you know, parents could share literature with children in the same way that they would um, you know, they would share stories orally rather than necessarily being able to read them. Hmm. Um going back to libraries libraries you've worked in libraries in the past i have, have you not? i have worked in libraries um what did what did that entail and what so, drew you to it i suppose is the other because i think you were you sort of found that on purpose rather than falling into it is that yeah it? i did i well sort of yes um mm. so what happened was i i went off to bradford which was not like windsor thank goodness and uh had a lovely lovely time there and did loads of drama actually um and was invited to go up to edinburgh for the um national youth theater but um but i decided not to because i had an overdraft of 400 pounds and i thought i can't possibly go schlepping off to edinburgh and you know there was no money involved you had to put on a show and everything so i thought i can't do that i can't do that um I don't know why I thought I couldn't do that. I think because I came from a very sensible family where people had proper jobs, so I didn't do that. And then I, I looked into... I really liked being at university. I thought being at university was lovely. So I looked at courses and I found um, an MA or, or postgraduate course in librarianship and information science at Aberystwyth. And I got accepted onto the course without going to see the place. And then I sort of got cold feet and thought... Um, you know, it's you know I'd have to kind of like get a grant and live in Aberystwyth for a year, which would probably have been lovely. Um, but no, I must go and get a job and clear my overdraft. <laughs> so um, I went and worked for a firm where my dad worked, um, and they had a vacancy in the company library. So it was a very, it was a very, it was a small company library. There were no, there was no poetry, it has to be said. There were a lot of um, technical books. And uh, so my job was basically someone would ring up and say, we need to find out about markets for um uh, particular types of equipment, because it was a company that uh, ran airports, but also did lots of sort of engineering stuff all over the world and so my job was to kind of research that and I did like that I like researching and then I went and worked for um Savills Surveyors which is posh estate agent and I wrote papers on um oh wonderful poetic titles like transport and communications in the Docklands because it was at that time before the Docklands was it was just becoming right you know one of those economically um interesting exciting areas and then I worked for a headhunting company and I researched people so I so I worked the sort of proper jobs I have had were actually all in company library and information services right. uh, your first collection poetry collection was published in 2001 is that right yeah I think so um was that always 
was uh, was be- was becoming sort of published like always part of your fo- like the focus that you were aiming to or did that no, sort of just it was, happen it was a sort of accident really because i did this ma at sussex um when my kids were four and six well four going on five six going on seven um bit of a mad time to do it but there's never you know there's never a right time to do an ma um and as i said i wanted to write short stories and I do write short stories and I love writing short stories but the poetry kind of went better than expected (laughs) and Tobias Hill who is um, an alumni of Sussex University came and judged a a university poetry competition and I think the first poem I wrote on the course uh, he gave it highly commended so I thought well this is rather lovely and so then I started sending poems off to magazines and I had no idea how it worked I, I was completely naive um, but we had a wonderful um, writer-in-residence called Carol Sachimurti, uh, and we I went to her workshops, and, and she told me what to do. She said, you have to send, you know, you have to send off six poems in an envelope, which is what sounds so quaint now, doesn't it? <laughs> and then you, you know, and then they might take one of them. Uh, but she published the first poem I ever wrote in a sociology magazine called Soundings. So I was first published in a sociology magazine. And then I believe the magazine of radical midwifery, slightly random place to be published. (laughs) And then I started sending off, you know, my poems to sort of proper poetry magazines. And um, but I had to learn. I just had to learn how to do it on the hoof because I had no idea. And no, there was no plan. There was no plan. And then I started getting poems published and then um, entered a book and pamphlet competition and the first stage, there were five first stage winners and you got a pamphlet published. And I got to that stage and got a pamphlet published. And then that was bizarrely shortlisted for a forward prize. Um, and so it started from there, really. Was that, is it, was that quite a sort of closed world? And if you're saying you weren't aware of how it worked and mm. I suppose a bit of an outsider. Yeah. Were people receptive to you or was it, or, or yeah. was it a bit like an they, upstart? They to... were because poets, you know, as a tribe, you know, are are quite nice really. They're, you know, I mean, obviously you have to take a vow of poet, of poverty to be a poet. So it's, it's not like, I mean, there are kind of career poets and, and, you know, as I said, the academy, there's, there's people who, you know, have jobs as professors of poetry. And if, you know, if you want to go down that route and, you know, be very academic about it, fine. I never did. I mean, I worked for Sussex University, but I was mostly teaching uh, fiction, prose fiction, bit of poetry. Um, but I worked for the WEA as well and, and, and taught um, fiction and poetry for them. But I didn't find it a closed world, actually. And I think because I was so naive, you know, if there were any rules, if I did transgress any any etiquette, didn't I, I didn't notice. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I probably did. That's but probably the way to be. I think so. And then, you know, you start doing readings and that kind of thing. And I've met some wonderful people on the poetry circuit. And I've been lucky enough to be invited to... Um, poetry conventions in in Ireland and in Ireland everybody loves poets they're Mm. so nice to you that you know you do a reading and then everyone in the audience takes you to the pub afterwards (laughs) it's fun you know the entire the entire uh you know poets and writers and readers and audience they all go to the pub and then the audience tell you about their poems then you read their poems and it's just lovely so I've I've had a great time 
in poetry. I've had some very funny experiences, but I, I think people who write poems like the compression of poetry um, and, and tend to be people who share the same kind of weird obsession. So there's I didn't a, there's find it a real reverence in Ireland, isn't there, for poets, poets and poetry? It's kind of in a way that I don't think we have here. That oh, absolutely not. And, and, and also, you know, creative people don't pay tax. And there's yes. wonderful grants and things available. So, you know, you go to a, a poetry convention over there and they're just completely delighted with you and they put you up in a nice hotel and, you know, they're incredibly generous and incredibly mm. nice. And, um, yeah, it's lovely. I mean, I didn't want to come home. I thought, yeah. this is great. A lot of this kind of tourist uh, industry in Dublin, at least, is is kind of focused on poets and showing you where they used to work and yeah, write and, absolutely. and drink. Yeah, and drink, of um, course. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know. It's, I, I, I'm not sure whether we in Britain have the same kind of relationship with poetry. No, I don't think we do. I, I think in I think in, in Ireland, um, very much my impression is it, it's an integral part of the culture and it's not a snobby thing either. It, it, it's not like you have to be middle class and you have to have gone on loads of courses and that kind of thing. Um, it's just it's part of the culture. Um, but when I was at this international poetry festival, there was this wonderful poet from Macedonia, and she said, "In Macedonia, we all write poetry." She said, "I, I go to my hairdressers. I have my hair cut. I, 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 I read my hairdresser a, a poem. You know, she gives me a blow dry. She reads me her poems. <laughs> I go to my accountant. I, you know, we discuss my finances. I read him my poems, and then he reads me his poems. And I just thought, you know, there are in lieu of payment. <laughs> not sure, but but she was completely serious about yeah. you know that there are still countries where um you know it's it's seen as you know absolutely everybody does it it's yeah. not it's not a weird thing to do it's just no, what people no. do i think in i think in ireland my my feeling was that you know there was there was great joy to be had in listening to poets as well you know the the audiences were so warm and respect and they did that kind of very gratifying what i call the moo the audience moo where somebody goes Ooh, at the end of a poem, because the, the, the sort of etiquette is it you don't clap after yeah. every poem because that's a bit discombobulating, but you you moo. So <laughs> Irish audiences were, you know, they mooed as one. It was like, oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a bit of chin stroking, but yeah. also the, you know, the appreciative moo was, was particularly gratifying. <laughs> um, you mentioned your family. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you have often featured kind of personal stories and references to your family yeah much your... to their annoyance yeah. well this was this is it how do you kind of go about doing that without upsetting anyone and yeah. have, you, have you met with resistance to <laughs> I really have um I don't so much now I think when I started writing poetry uh well I started writing when I was a child so I I got some poems in uh um it was a bit shameful actually it was the daily mail don't judge me children's literary competition but you know they were the only ones having a children's yeah. literary competition so I got some prize some highly commended in that and then when I was at school there was a wonderful scheme by the Poetry Society in conjunction with W.H. Smith. And we had two real live poets. I, I'd assumed that all poets were dead because we just studied dead people, um, dead men, obviously. Of course. Um, and, but anyway, these two live men, quite kind of bohemian, uh, trendy, beardy guys turned up and did poetry workshops with us. Um, and so they... So that was great, and I had a couple of poems in a W.H. Smith anthology, now mercifully never to be found and out of print. But when I started writing 
in my 30s with two young children, the, the fashion was very much for autobiographical, what they call confessional poetry. And I, I don't like the term confessional because, you know, what is it? You're, you're not confessing to anything bad. You're just kind of bearing witness to mm. stuff that's going on Definitely in your life. Wrongdoing. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's quite a judgmental term, but it's it's I suppose it's sort of bearing witness poetry and autobiographical poetry was the thing everyone was doing it so I did it as well because that those were the waters I was swimming in and I was buying all these books and people were writing about you know going to the shops and, <laughs> and you know having insomnia and that kind of thing so I thought oh, I'll do that then that's obviously that's obviously what you have to do um and I think you know, when you start writing, you are very influenced by the people you're reading. You, it's very difficult not to be, unless you're incredibly strong-minded and incredibly original. So I think I started, yeah, I mean, I wrote a few poems about my kids. Um, but uh, one of them, I wrote more about one than the other. So the one I wrote about complained that I wrote about him. And the one I didn't write about complained that I didn't write about him. <laughs> so, you know, a mother's place is in the wrong, basically. Um, but I kind of, yeah, it's, it's... And then I kind of felt that I'd done that and I could kind of leave that. And I really didn't want to write about me anymore. I yeah. felt I'd done me. So I, I wrote much more... Uh, surreal magic realist what there's a school in poetry I, I don't know if it's still referred to it's called the martian school as in you know people from mars would come and read your poems and think what earth is going on here you know these, these are so weird <laughs> or perhaps that you know they were written by people from right. mars <laughs> agreement um so yeah so then i started going more sort of surreal and magic realist because i i kind of feel with autobiography you know it's it's a furrow that some poets plow it all their lives mm. they just want to write about themselves i don't find myself that interesting actually right. <laughs> <laughs> i kind of feel i've done me and uh you know what what is an interesting poem about finding a bargain at the garden center you know <laughs> maybe not <laughs> um so what does writing fiction give you that writing poetry maybe doesn't? Is there something different that you get from it? Um, well, writing fiction, I think because it tends to be longer, there can be more exploration of character and backstory. That, but I've, my poems are quite narrative. Mm. What I discovered with narrative poetry was that you didn't really have to bother about the ending. You can just leave on an interesting image mm. and that's it. And that seems to be absolutely fine whereas with I mean you can leave on it you can leave halfway through a story in in short fiction um but there tends to be some more sense of resolution some more sense of a you know a climax leading to some sort of denouement so I have written poems from stories and I have sometimes when I'm starting a story I realize it wants to be a poem and sometimes when I'm writing a poem, I realise it wants to be a story. And mm. I have got a few poems that there's also a story version. So right. so I, th I think what, what writing fiction gives me is that there's more room to explore backstory. I mean, in a poem, you, you can put in some backstory, some flashback, but generally the, you know, the image patterns are more to do with you know driving forward the idea yeah. and I mean unless you I have written a, a pamphlet length um 
rhyming poem, Never Again. Oh, God, it was torture to buy myself a rhyming dictionary. <laughs> um, and that was a story, you know, that was a yeah. story explored in, in a poem form and it's satirical and supernatural and surreal. Um, but I think what I like about writing fiction is that, yeah, there's, there's, more, there's more room to, to dive deeper into character. Um, with a poem, you've got to say what you're going to say and get out. Um, and uh, with a poem, you know, you spend most of your time taking words out. <laughs> you, know, you, right, you, yeah. you write it and then go, oh, no, that's a bit clotted. There's three adverbs in that stanza. <laughs> They'll have to go. Um, so it's it's more about, you know, trying to say what you're you're going to say in the in the most economical form. But fiction, there's, a, you know, there's a bit more room. Mm. Uh, and where does the... Uh, I'm thinking specifically of your collection, The Butcher's Hands, mm-hmm. where there is, there's often quite a dark... I was going to say subtext, but sometimes it's just text. <laughs> no, it's just there. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just, just a lot of sort of... Uh, yeah, sort of violence and yeah. um, morbidity, I suppose. Yeah, grotesqueness. Where does, I, yeah, where does that come... I suppose you, some people talk about writing that sort of stuff, and you often hear it's either... Uh, an expression of something that is part of yourself mm. or the reason people do it is because that isn't part of themselves and they want to explore it. Which yeah, kind of... yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I think the the lovely thing about creative writing is that you can explore parts of yourself that actually it might be quite difficult to bring to the table, you know, at the garden centre or at a dinner party <laughs> or in the school playground kind of thing. You know, you've got limitless freedom to explore whatever you want to explore I think because I was always drawn to quite you know the kind of comically grotesque in children's stories and you know and, and poetry Hilaire Belloc for example um I'm, I'm quite I am quite drawn to the dark side I, I like crime I like horror I like um you know I like dark subjects and I think there is also that expression happiness writes white I mean I, I never want to read poems about somebody having a lovely day right because I kind of think why do I need to know this <laughs> go and have your lovely good day I you. don't I good for you good good for you but um yeah I, I think uh, yeah I think writing poetry and uh, and reading other poets who were also, I mean, Carol Satchamurti, for example, um, and Vicky Fever, who were writing about the dark side of domesticity and family life and so forth, and, and writing about how, you know, motherhood can be boring and frustrating. And I thought, well, yeah, can sometimes actually, <laughs> souls, but you know, <laughs> but it can, you know, yeah. unless you're a, you know, you're a, you're a complete earth mother and you find the whole thing a hundred percent fulfilling a hundred percent of the time most of the time it's just sort of mess I'm not and noise sure I ever actually believe those people <laughs> <laughs> no nor do I I think they're yeah I think they're hiding something but um so yeah I I think it I think my writing has always been my way of exploring that that kind of dark side and and also sometimes you know you can be writing something and think I didn't know I thought that mm. <laughs> you know and then you realize you do and also if you're writing fiction you can give this dark stuff to other fictional characters and say no it's not me I'm just the author you know it's just it's the it's the protagonist who's uh you know kind of I don't know stealing um things from museums and secreting them in her garden shed you know you can you can explore all these kind of weird ideas and give them give them to someone else to do I thought the people that I know who aren't interested in I guess horror or the grotesque never the thing they can't get their head around is the idea that the more 
grotesque things get, the more humour there is to be found Completely. in it. Which I think is, is quite interesting. And I, yeah. I think that is an interesting idea to explore. But it's quite hard yeah. to kind of, I suppose, explain that to someone who feels a little bit put off by it. Yeah, you know? I, I think also, I mean, it's it's quite interesting. I, I was teaching on an Arvon course and... Um, uh, one of the students said to me after on the I think about the third evening because Arvon courses are residential about the third evening we're having a few glasses of wine in the barn and she thought I thought I thought you'd be very very dark you know I think she expected me to arrive in a black cape you know with a black cat <laughs> on a broomstick kind of thing and she said you know you you wear clothes from Marks and Spencers and you know you, you you know you like pasta and I was well you know you do <laughs> I think there is this idea that, you know, if you are interested in in exploring dark stuff in your writing, you must look a certain way right. and you must be very cross and you must certainly never enter, you know, a chain store to buy an item of clothing. So it, I think there's all, you know, there's all sorts of, of, of stereotypes about, mm. you know, writers and poets especially. I've always found it quite uh, almost liberating. The more people I've met who are, I don't know, artists or musicians or whatever mm. and their work is quite dark and I suppose when I was younger I probably would have had the same thing like that's mm. who that person is all the time but the more people I've met <laughs> when I realize oh like you're just a completely normal person who yeah. doesn't think this way all the time I've I've found it kind of gives a new layer to the work because you mm. then start to you stop reading it as this is the thoughts of some mm. damaged deranged person you start <laughs> to consume it as a piece of work and you yeah. start to understand the, the, sto- the story and... is not the person, you yeah. know, the, the, the author, the author is separate mm. from their work. I mean, they may well be exploring themes that interest or even obsess them. But, you know, I, I, Val McDermott is, you know, is, is a lovely person. You know, she's very she's like everybody's favorite auntie, but she writes these, you know, really <laughs> quite violent, quite, you know, terrible, violent things happen in her novels. But, you know, that's that's because she's making it up. It's, yeah. you know, it's like <laughs> it's actors. It's, it's like it's make-believe they're yeah. pretending you know they're not really that person <laughs> they've raided the dressing up box and learned some lines and it's the same with right i think writing is like acting in many ways it's mm. it's imagining especially if you're writing a first person narrative it's imagining yourself into that life but then you can leave it and then you know go to the supermarket and get excited about a two-for-one offer yeah i think people can get quite wrapped up in the idea that it's art is real rather than yeah. you know i meant this this is a story about um dustin hoffman working on a film with Laurence olivier and it was when dustin hoffman was quite new and part of the sort of method school mm. and uh <laughs> for a take he was kind of working himself up into the state that he needed to be in the scene and sort of running around and mm-hmm. getting all out of breath and Laurence olivier asked him what it, why he was doing it and he said well i need to be in this state in the scene and he said have you tried acting darling <laughs> just act darling just act darling it's the same it's the same with writing it's just, it's just you know you have to think yourself but you know especially if you're if you're writing a, a long-form fiction but you know even if you're writing a, a poem or a sequence of poems you have to think yourself into that world mm. um but you are allowed to leave afterwards yeah. <laughs> and i i also think that you know um <laughs> there was a you know, there's a certain amount of people who think that, you know, if they if they dye their hair pink or blue and wear a lot of dark makeup and always wear black and sneer a lot and, um, you know, 
know a lot of Baudelaire or whatever, then that makes them a creative. It's the work that makes you a creative. Right. You know, you, you may look the part and everyone may very be very impressed, but where's the work? Hmm. It's the work that's in... The work is the only thing that's important. The, the, the image or persona of the artist is completely irrelevant. It's completely unimportant as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and do you feel compelled, maybe not compelled, but do you feel... Um, drawn to leaving things unexplained in your work yeah or, yeah I don't know does that lend itself as well to maybe releasing something that you could look at and say well there's things in that that I'm not totally happy with I could change that do you feel the need to hold on to it until it's exactly what you wanted to say or are you yeah. happy to just put it out there and let people it's interesting it? I mean I everything goes through six or seven drafts but having said that you know when the book comes back from the printers I can barely bear to read it because mm. I know I'll find something where I think oh why didn't I change that and you know the rhythm's a bit wonky there or whatever so I tend not to go back I I kind of like the sort of what well, I mean a, a course I have taught a few times is, is called trust the image so, you know, the poem or the story will have a particular image pattern and then readers will interpret it in different ways. You know, it, there may be, as far as I'm concerned, there's only one way of interpreting this. But I did a poetry reading once in Bath and this lady came up to me afterwards and said, why are you obsessed with bread? And I said, I'm not obsessed with bread. She said, yes, you are. All your, <laughs> all your poems have all these baking images and all these dough riding, rising images in and I hadn't realized that that was subconscious so you know what was going on there I don't know I don't know and it's quite nice not knowing actually mm. I, I think I don't think it's the writer's job to to be able to write their own you know analysis of their work I think that's you know everybody needs a hobby and you know a lot of people make quite a good living writing reviews yeah. or <laughs> doing a literary analysis of somebody else's work I, I think you just do your best at the time and then you leave it let it go and, and people will interpret it in different ways and that's fine I find it I've found it quite frustrating recently with not in an academic set uh, setting but um kind of mainstream film not even analysis but comment reaction basically online because mm. that's such a everyone has to kind of have <laughs> have theories and yeah. all this and it's kind of become this really literal um kind of school of thought which yeah. really frustrates me and mm. you see people getting quite angry on twitter always twitter where um <laughs> someone kind of offers an explanation of this film is about x or mm. it's mm. it's kind of touching on this theme and people mm. are like well no it isn't mm it's a story where these things happen to these characters that's what it's about and people are very obsessed with things being canon mm. and like that fits into a certain timeline these mm. things exist in the same universe mm. and it's not it's kind of it's packaged as a way to kind of get more out of consuming the work but mm. actually it's very restrictive mm. and people respond to kind of interpretation saying well uh, well actually the director said it was about this yeah. So it's not about the thing you said. I, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it, everybody wants to sort of, I think, show how clever they are and make their mark as well. Fair enough. But I also think that 
you can read, you can see a film when you're a particular age in with particular friends in a particular mood. And you're absolutely convinced that all the symbolism is is about, you know, something or other. And then you see the film or read the book or whatever it is. Ten years later, you're with a different bunch of people. You've had different life experiences. And you think, what a complete idiot I was. It wasn't about that at all. It was, it was about cardigans. It was, it was just about cardigans. It was a poem about cardigans. And that's all it was about. So I think that our, our perception shifts as well. And, and I think, you know, it's a shame to be too literal about things. And also, you know, can't things be about all sorts of things? Yeah. And, and I, also, I, also, I do also think that just because the director said it's about this or the person on whose novel it was based said it's about this, by the time it's in the public domain, yeah. it's subjective, Absolutely, actually. Yeah. It's a subjective experience. It's not, you know, you can't kind of bolt it down and, and define it. Yeah. Um, I mean, some, obviously, some theories are very outlandish, and I think some people want to make their mark by having very outlandish theories. But I think once a piece of work, a piece of creative work, whether it's a poem, a story, a novel, a film, a painting, whatever, is in the public domain, if somebody says, I, you know, I look at that painting and see, um, you know, uh, I, I, you know, it's, it's all about migration, mm. whatever... Um, then for that person, that's, that's what it's about. Yeah. yeah, I think taking the creator at their word, what it, it kind of denies the existence of the subconscious as well, and completely cultural yeah. uh, influence as well, yeah. which might yeah. that may not have been what they were thinking when they made it, but it's all in there. I think you have you just have to let it go yeah. actually. And and my poetry has been picked up by um, a dance troupe, and they they wanted to explore. Um, a, a, they were doing Polish physical theatre and they came across a poem called The New Bride and uh, they said, yeah, this is, you know, this is about this. And they did all this amazing dance stuff and they changed some of the words and I and I thought it was great. I thought it was fantastic. I thought the words were better, actually. <laughs> but also the fact that what they'd seen in it was a dance. They saw it as a physical thing. I hadn't written it as a physical thing, but once I've written it and it's in the public domain... I mean, it belongs to me because it's my copyright, but it it also belongs to the person who's reading it or dancing it or whatever. How closely involved do you normally get in adaptation? Because I know you've been adapted quite, yeah. a, quite a bit. Is yeah. it, are you sort of fairly hands-on or are you saying just this is yours to do something with now? The latter, yeah. yeah. I mean, if I, I'm, I'm adapting my own work, co-adapting my own work for stage, for live literature, which I do with the wonderful Mark Hewitt, Hello, Mark. Uh, with at Lewis Live Literature, so lucky to live here, where we have our own live literature um, company and a wonderful director. Very, he's very sensitive and thoughtful. Um, but if he says, "I think at this point, you know, it, these words need to be spoken in a whisper or shouted, or somebody needs to go and stick their head in a cupboard and, and <laughs> read these lines," I just think, "Yeah, that sounds really good," because, you know. I'm not a director. I don't have those skills. So if somebody sees something in the work that I don't see, you know, happy days as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, we uh, last year we were working on a book group um, for Sutton uh, Libraries about uh, adaptation. Mm. And it was kind of, yeah, just inviting discussion on people's favourite adaptations. But then also it was quite clear also, are there any adaptations that you've <laughs> sort of upset because people yeah. get quite protective oh they do yeah is there is there any particular sort of literary adaptations in the past of anything that have made a sort of big impact on you 
positive or negative um i i like i do like morse i think the morse series is is terrific and i i haven't read the books by colin dexter but what they say very cleverly is based on characters created by colin dexter and the same for vera which i think is a terrific series based on characters created by anne cleave and i think the thing is that a novel very often doesn't translate particularly well literally to a film because what you have in a novel or a story or a poem, you have the interior life of the character. That's very tricky in a film unless you're going to do that kind of voices off, this is the interior life of the character (laughs) or, I don't know, text or something Um, or somebody reading their diary or, you know, walking along and you get their interior thoughts. The film noir sort of Yeah, it's very, very difficult actually. So what you've got to do, what the characters have got, sorry, what the actors have got to do because they're clever and they're very good at doing this, is their facial expressions have to change, or or there's there's got to be um, some you know non clunky dialogue in which exposition is revealed. You know, remember that time when you were six and you accidentally set the stables on fire and that kind of thing, or somebody is interviewing someone. So I think it's really difficult to have a literal interpretation of a novel as a film you have filmmakers have to find ways around it so i i'm not upset my mum gets terribly upset by agatha christie adaptations if miss marple is not her version right. of miss marple <laughs> um and i prefer some miss marples to others but at the same time i kind of think these things have to move on they have to develop and and who knows if my interpretation of this character is actually the right one maybe mm. it's not i think the first question i was asked when i'm sort of looking at an adaptation is does this need to be whatever medium it is does it need to be this yeah yeah, and if you can't if you can't really make the case for it having to be what for example if it's a book adapted into a film Mm. if you can't kind of plainly demonstrate why this wouldn't work Mm. if it was not a film yeah then i think there's a problem there's like a central issue which yeah um because they're so it's, they're such sort of individual mediums and they're sort yeah. of uh, literary sort of uh, language and uh, rules, I guess, and there's cinematic language and stuff that you can convey in film that you can't in a book. And mm. that you can Yeah, I book. mean, you're, you're dealing with, with, a, with a different toolbox in a way. Yeah. I mean, a film I was so impressed by was Patrick Suskin's, uh, based on Past- Patrick Suskin's perfume. Oh, yeah. So Patrick Suskin's perfume is just suffused with smell, which I think... I think it's such a clever book because uh, I think smell is the most difficult sense to write about it's because sort of the smell long descriptions of yeah, smells in that isn't absolutely it? And, and this maverick guy who's sort of you know his mum kind of accidentally gives birth to him in a market and then you know immediately tries to kill him and then she's taken off and is executed obviously because uh, it's 18th century Paris which is very very smelly and stinky and I thought well this isn't going to work how the hell is this going to work as a film because the you know the central premise is about smell and the mem- the, the sensuous memories of smell and it was brilliant mm. it was absolutely brilliant and I think that's that's so clever and it must have been such a challenge but I think what they did was that they suggested you know the stink of a of a, a you know a, a Paris back street with you know people picking up the dog poo to to cure the leather and that kind of thing probably one of the worst jobs in history I would have thought <laughs> um uh, but they managed to convey that through 
through visual imagery and so there's a kind of synesthesia that mm. goes on there where where you're you, you know one sense is kind of tickled by another so i thought that was really clever yeah um i've asked you to uh bring or nominate some desert island books you have yes um i wonder if you could take me through them and sort of go into why they mean what they do to you. yeah I mean this was a lovely challenge it was also so difficult because you know <laughs> I would I would kind of I wouldn't really bother with clothes I think on a desert island I just have a trunk of books <laughs> so you know but how I, or I thought could I take my kindle because there's like hundreds on there and I thought no you couldn't charge it so that's the you know disadvantage isn't it of <laughs> of ebooks so what I thought I should do was I should choose one poetry collection one novel and one collection of short stories. Okay. So that's what I did. So maybe start with the poetry. Sure. This was really difficult. Um, and I must tell you that all my poetry books are arranged alphabetically because my, my inner librarian <laughs> <laughs> came out. So this is um, a lovely collection called Leaving Fingerprints by MTS Darker. And I'll just read you a little blurb on the back of the book because it says it better than I could. So Imtiaz Dhaka was born in Pakistan, grew up in Glasgow, and now divides her time between Bombay and London. Her main themes are drawn from a life of transitions, childhood, exile, journeying, home, displacement, religious strife and terror. She's also an accomplished artist and all her collections are illustrated with her drawings. And this isn't going to come over on a podcast, is it? But she's, <laughs> she's such a lovely artist. So she does all these sort of beautiful, beautiful line drawings, many of which incorporate the idea of fingerprints. And obviously, you know, our fingerprints are, are totally unique to us, aren't they? You know, hence the kind of, you know, or just take your prints now, sir, yes. <laughs> down at the cop shop. Um, and this is just a beautiful collection. And she, she writes a lot about... Um, about her her childhood and growing up and so forth. Um, but she also uses the surreal and the supernatural. So it's not one of those kind of, you know, I had a bad night, I woke up and went to the supermarket, you know, then I saw, a, you know, and the final image is a pigeon and you have to work out how does the pigeon, you know, relate to loss or whatever. They're really, really beautiful poems and they span continents and um she's just a lovely lovely writer she you know she's so lyrical and um so spare there's not a word wasted I, I met her when I did a reading with her and I was completely completely mesmerized by her reading she's also a really good reader of her own work which cannot be said of all poets unfortunately <laughs> um she's got a beautiful voice so and she's quite you know she embraces violence she embraces uh you know what happens to women in particular cultures she embraces displacement but it's not kind of trendy multiculturalism you know kind of ticking particular boxes it's mm. this is her life this is a lived experience so imtiaz darka i would really recommend everybody rush to their local library and find <laughs> her work is there a particular um poem that yeah i'd love kind of... to read this one and it's called one frame it happened in the time it takes to blink, just like that. Someone was there to catch it while it was happening and put it in a box, easy as trapping a mouse. It went in, quick, click, click, katak, then sat dead, still, without a sound. It sat in its box without the sound of fire crackling on the burning truck, the sandbag under the boy's small feet, the shuffle, the cough, the scraping on brick. 
It was captured with skill and a trick of the light. Click, click, attack, and that was it. It never cried out, never put up a fight, just went and sat in its box without a sound. It sat in its box without the sound of running feet or shattering glass. The message beep on a mobile phone, the gunshot, the banging heart, the last prayer. It sat in its box without the sound of the wind breathing through the grass or someone whispering afterwards or the questions I keep forgetting to ask. Very nice and very well read. Thank you. MTS nice. um, would have read it better. Yeah, it's very... Uh, Quite tactile. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's leaving fingerprints. Leaving fingerprints. By Imtiaz Darker. Imtiaz Darker. So you're yeah. on your island. You've been. So you've read this poetry. <laughs> you've had enough of poetry for a while, and you want to <laughs> delve into some short stories. Yeah. So this is a collection which I think is just absolutely brilliant. I particularly like the title. It's we don't know what we're doing, <laughs> <laughs> and none of us do really. Isn't so that the case? yeah, yeah, and it's by a young Welsh writer called Thomas Morris. And this is a series of short stories, and some of them are linked short stories in that characters from one of the stories sort of pop up in a minor role in the others. They're not all kind of neatly linked. And they're set in Caerphilly uh, in South Wales. And Caerphilly is not the most obvious um, literary landscape for many people. But it's a sleeping castle town in South Wales, it says on the back. And I grew up in a town with a castle so, and live in a town with a castle. So I quite like castles because, you know, there's you can just imagine everything that happened. And they are just absolutely brilliant. I first came across one of his short stories in um, a literary magazine called The Stinging Fly. And I think uh, Thomas was involved with The Stinging Fly, which is in Ireland, of course. Of course. Of course, in Dublin. Or else um and they're just they are extraordinary they're absolutely extraordinary and some of them are very realistic some of them are supernatural there's a there's a whole story called nostar which means good night in welsh uh and all the main characters are all dead and they're working in a in a center where they're kind of putting together um films of people's lives some of whom are also dead so the dead in kafili are all there we just can't see them and they have a parallel existence and it's such an outrageous preposterous mm. Uh, premise and yet he writes about it so confidently he's a, he's a very very confident writer he's very funny there are moments of real poignancy he writes a lot about young people who've left the town they the small town they came from and they've gone to you know the big cities to go to university have a life and then they come back for christmas or for funerals and there's there's that kind of they're confronted by their younger selves so right. i think it's very relatable for yeah. a lot of us <laughs> absolutely <laughs> he's just he's I mean, he's only in his 30s, which makes me want to hate him. <laughs> but he is brilliant. He's also a really nice person. He does this thing where he shares a short story that he likes with his subscriber list. And he's very generous and very nice, which is sort of annoying. But he's just, yeah, he's absolutely brilliant. And he writes in, you know, he's quite a brave writer. He, he There's one short story about uh, a stag night set in Dublin, of course. Oh, uh, it's called All the Boys. And uh, can I just read out a couple of Please, yeah. sentences? Um, All the Boys. The best man won't tell them it's Dublin until they get to Bristol Airport. 
He'll tell them to bring euros and don't bother packing shorts. The five travelling from Caerphilly will drink on the minibus. And Big Mike, the best man, will spend the first 20 minutes reading and rereading the A4 itinerary he typed up on MS Word. The plastic poly pocket will be wedged thick with flight tickets and hotel reservations. It will be crumpled and creased from the constant hand scrunching and metronome swatting against his suitcase, the only check-in bag on the entire trip. He'll spend the journey to the airport telling Gareth, and anyone else who listens, that Rob had better never marry again, that he couldn't handle the stress of organising another one of these. So it's all written in the future tense. This, I'm here to tell you, is really flipping difficult. Really difficult. If it wasn't done well, it could be a bit of a slog, almost reading a list. Absolutely. Um, and it's it's absolute, it, It's just a wonderful story. I mean, it, it, it's difficult for me to choose a favourite story in this collection because I, I love them all. There's not a dud among them. But he writes a lot about masculinity and how difficult it is for blokes to show their feelings. Um, and he, you know, in this story, there are the boys that stayed in Caerphilly mm. and there are the boys that left. And so there's kind of two teams, there's two tribes. Right. And everything goes wrong. You know, they get pissed, they get into fights. Um, I, I won't I won't reveal the kind of, you know, the big reveal, but it's just his writing is absolutely exquisite and beautiful. Um, so, yeah, I would take this because every time I read these stories... I find something new in them and I find that about Imtiaz's poetry as well. And I think for me, a good read is when you come back to something and think, okay, I, maybe I didn't get this. If I, you know, mm, maybe yeah. now I'm seeing something different. Um, and that for me is, you know, a story or a poem that doesn't give up all its secrets immediately mm. and maybe needs a bit more excavation. That for me is a worthwhile read. Brilliant. So that's my short story choice. What about your novel? And the, oh, my novel. This was so difficult. But <laughs> but I had to come back to... I mean, I think... I, I always thought my favourite novel of all time was Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. But so many people choose that one. And it is absolutely brilliant. But Sarah Waters' The Night Watch. Um, and this is such a clever, clever novel. Tender and tra- tragic, set against the turbulent back of wartime Britain, The Night Watch is the extraordinary story of four Londoners. Kay, who wanders the streets in mannish clothes, restless and searching. Helen, who harbours a troubling secret. Viv, glamour girl, recklessly loyal to her soldier lover. And Duncan, an apparent innocent, struggling with demons of his own. And uh, Sarah Waters writes historical fiction and she writes about gay characters. Um, And... Her, her books, they're beautifully, beautifully written. And the thing I love about this, because, again, it could so easily not work. It starts at the end. So it starts right, okay. in 1947, and then it goes back to before war is declared. So it's, it's you know, the structure is extraordinary. And you think, well, you start reading it and think, well, it's all happened. You know, it's like the dead people are dead. You know, the people with secrets, their secrets have been revealed. So it's a sort of story that it, it's not just about, you know, who done it. It's about why done it and why mm. did it happen? And she writes so beautifully about 
lives that aren't really considered in history normally she writes about forgotten lives and she's writing about a gay subculture when you know to be homosexual was illegal Mm. um you know men were sent to prison women because queen victoria said she couldn't imagine two women doing that sort of thing it apparently wasn't a crime to be a lesbian it's just you know (laughs) because it didn't go on (laughs) it didn't go on obviously because she couldn't imagine it but she writes about you know manish k who i think is my favorite character is a woman who's who's quite masculine in mm. their demeanour, quite, you know, perhaps quite butch. Um, a wonderful, wonderful character. Her dialogue is beautiful. And what I love about her writing is that you never hear the writer. You never hear... You don't hear the writer being clever. What, what you get is the story. She hands over completely to her characters. So although it's written in, in the third person, so, you know, she's not pretending you know it's not it's not the fictional eye um it's it's just she just gets under the skin and into the minds and characters and backstories of her characters and it's just it's a different take on the war Mm. you know there are so many books about the war generally written from quite a male perspective this is the first it's certainly the first novel about the war i've read that's written backwards (laughs) but it's also you know, the, the women are are the key characters and what happens to them and the decisions they take and so forth. And also, I think that the sadness after the war ended, um, you know, the loss of life, but the sense of futility, but also that kind of that camaraderie had finished and so forth. Right. And so people who discovered that they were actually stronger and braver than they ever knew, then the war ended and there's a, you know, there's a sense of flatness. And I think she's very clever at exploring that. That is a real, um, you kind of see that again and again, people who lived through sort of things that you would never, you'd hope never to live through. There's mm. quite often a sense of loss when mm. it's over that, that, yeah, like you say, the kind of, you're forced to, mm. I suppose, work with people and Yeah, and, di- and dig deep and, and, and you know, realise that you're, you know, that you're brave and strong. And, you know, one of the characters is, you know, works um, that the Night Watch is about, you know, going out and and, and, uh, and scooping up the dead at night, yeah, basically. Yeah. You know, buildings had been bombed and, you know, there were lots of people were co-opted as volunteers to go out with the emergency services and, and you know, find children blown to bits and that kind of thing. And, and people who thought I could never do that, they did that because they had to do that so it brought out you know strengths that they didn't know they had and she's very unflinching you know she doesn't as a writer Sarah Waters she does describe the realistic horrors of war you know Mm. this isn't a sanitized version at all well that is uh available to be borrowed from certain libraries well that's a jolly good thing Um, (laughs) (laughs) form an orderly queue yeah if that if that uh (laughs) is of interest then um yeah you can borrow that from uh, any Sutton library branch mm-hmm. um well i think i'll give you the the last word you touched on it uh, a bit at the beginning but just to kind of explain again what libraries mean to you i suppose you know i think living in a society without libraries would just be unthinkable i mean having worked in commercial libraries i know that they are you know they're not a nice pleasant add-on they're absolutely essential to the way companies operate you know technical libraries commercial libraries but I think local libraries they're a great example of you know they they were they were something that I think we did really well 
the idea of sharing and I think this is something that people are thinking about more. Why, why does everybody need their own version of something? Why don't we pool it communally? Mm. You know, there are, li- there are toy libraries, there are libraries of th- in Lewis. We have a lovely library of things. So if you don't have a, um, you know, a lawnmower or something, go and vis- visit one. So I, I think it's the idea that it's very democratic. It's also a way for children to discover many more books than they can have at home. Also for adults, it, it's the idea that, anyone's allowed in that's what I like about it anyone's allowed in and um you can discover you know if a book is a portal to another world then it's kind of like going into a place where there are all these you know wonderful brilliant worlds waiting for you between the covers of a book but you know also the reference section you know the factual stuff you know do you wish to learn to be a more efficient fish keeper for example or you know why not I kind of think we should share these things and I think that during lockdown when the libraries were closed that was such a poignant image I remember walking past Lewis Library and just thinking no one can get in and and what's going on for all those children that don't have lots of books at home and for whom the library is an, is an absolute sanctuary So there we have it. A huge thank you to Catherine for welcoming us into her home to record this conversation and a special thank you to you for listening wherever you are. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Sutton Libraries on Twitter and at Sutton Libraries London on Facebook and Instagram. Please leave a review of the podcast wherever you listen if you can and we'll see you next week for another chat with another special guest. Until then, keep reading. Keep reading.